0: this is the frontier podcast powered by gun.io the engineer's choice for engineering talent if you like what you hear rate review and subscribe and follow us on twitter at the frontier pod we need to be able to talk to people talking to the computer is the easy part that's from java developer advocate trisha g at jetbrains Trisha speaks worldwide about career development for programmers, including about soft skills, communication skills, and what it means to really progress your career as a developer. In this inspiring episode, Ledge talks with Trisha about listening, asking questions, sharing information, and how those activities are what make us a senior developer, VPE, or a CTO. Trisha, good to have you. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.
0: Could you give a little background story of yourself and your work, you know, for anybody who doesn't know you in the audience?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I'm Tricia. I'm a a Java developer, or I have been a Java developer for about 20 years or something terrifying like that. Um, But for the last like five years or so, I've been a developer advocate, which means um, mostly staying on top of Java stuff, doing a bit of Java development stuff, but also um, doing blogging, going to conferences, speaking to other Java developers, keeping up with trends, um that kind of thing.
0: And you do that for JetBrains. So tell us about JetBrains because I think uh, you guys do some really important work for, you know, the developer class.
1: That's nice of you to say that. Uh, yeah. So I work for JetBrains. I'm the IntelliJ idea um, advocate mostly. And um, so most developers either know IntelliJ idea or Rider or Resharper. Um, we, we do a bunch of IDEs. We have team tools as well. So we've got an issue tracker and we've got Team City for continuous integration, but um, most developers know the the IDEs.
0: And um, I saw, and the reason we, we got in touch was I saw you do a bunch of talks about uh, both soft skills for developers and for you know career path development and for developers and and programmers so thinking about you know how to how to move through and you know you, you tell some good stories about mistakes that you made and, and places that people can kind of uh, pave their own way you know and and set their goals so i loved all that i think there's a lot of intersection of those those two topics i'd love if you you dive into some tips there and then i'll just ask some questions
1: yeah sure i um, the whole topic of career advice for programmers it- is something I'm like I'm super i passionate about because um I mean I I've, I've been a pro I did computer science and I sort of followed the traditional programming career path if you like but even sort of despite that if you like I didn't really um, have a lot of guidance on what it meant to be a programmer or how to um, how to progress my career, uh, and particularly because I started at an enterprise, I worked for Ford Motor Company. Obviously, the career path for that was to go into management after two to three years of development. So, after sort of five, then maybe ten years of being a developer, I started to understand a bit more about how to get ahead. But that's mostly in terms of how to present myself, how to interview, how to do my resume or my CV. Um, how to network. And then over the last sort of five years of doing a more sort of senior role and speaking to more senior people, I'm starting to see it's that that side of stuff, getting in the entry level stuff requires you to tick a bunch of boxes um, and to do things that might not be comfortable for you in terms of gathering skills, in terms of um, doing jobs that you don't really like, (laughs) probably. Um, And then, you know, as you get more experienced it dawns on me that there's a whole bunch of other things that we don't know that we need for our roles. Even if we continue to stay hands-on technical coders, um, like, and this is the topic of my most recent presentation, um, communication skills, and how we talk to people, how um, how we phrase questions, how we listen to those questions, um, how we interact with other people, and all these things. And, you know, I've been a developer... I went to university in 1997 and it's now sort of 20 years later and it's only just occurred to me, we need to be able to talk to people. And no one really said that because they said, you just have to talk to the computer. <laughs> but that's the easy bit. Talking to the computer is the easy bit. Talking to users, talking to customers, or even if we are, are just, I say with uh, you know, inverted commas, just a developer, talking to other developers. Um, these, these things are skills and skills that we are not – not encouraged to focus on.
0: Yeah, and you're right. I mean, I, I was a computer science guy too. And, you know, it's it's about the engineering. It's about the science and algorithms and code and, you know, how to get things to compile. And you're, you're right. And, I mean, no one talks at all about this, um, this other stuff. And when I started in the industry also about 20 years ago, you know, it was still, at least where I was, you know, kind of okay for the – the developers to be down in the basement and, you know, sitting behind the screen and the lights are off. And we're these, you know, creepy basement dwellers that wrote code. And I mean, we weren't even allowed to talk to the customer. And, right. and it's, it's marveling to me to see like how that has inverted. And uh, I mean, there certainly was there was no phrase about, you know, customer empathy or anything like right. that. And UX wasn't even a thing. And, but the, you know... <laughs> you the know. funny
1: thing is that having those skills made, did make us better at the jobs if we were able to talk to other other developers even. I mean, as a developer advocate, that's my job. I speak to other developers. And of course, we have our own language. But even the ability to write a well-named variable or a well-named method, this is a communication skill. And we just... And even if we were basement dwellers, which we were at some time, um, we, we weren't even... Encouraged to communicate with the other basement dwellers. And one of the things is, it's not just that the industry has changed a lot, and obviously communication is important, working in an agile way is important. Things like DevOps, which allows us to cross boundaries, all of those things are important and has meant that communication skills are even more important than ever. But we, I think that our industry always required a certain level of communication skills, and we never, we never were aware of that or pushed that. And just to get onto one of my other bugbears, this is another reason why we have a diversity problem <laughs> because there is this perception that we are non-communicative basement dwellers and it's not true. It's not the truth. The, the, it's really important for us to be able to talk to people. These skills are, are not only like, oh yeah, that would be nice to have on top of technical skills. They're actually one of the ways that we can learn technical skills by listening to other developers, by learning stuff from them, by asking them questions. Uh, and then as we become more senior, by sharing that knowledge through these sorts of soft, so-called soft skills, and that makes us a really good um, senior developer, or lead, or CTO, or mentor, um, and those are the skills we need to become very senior. And yet, all that we see um, in sort of media and and all our all of our perceptions of this technical career path is it's all about talking to the computers, and it's about white men sat in bas- sat in basements not speaking to each other, <laughs> and it's not true. <laughs>
0: I I actually sat in the basement with some some women at that point, so you know, very diverse, but not really, <laughs> but um, you know. So yeah, I, I I agree, it all goes together, and I, I think we have this inclination sometimes to allow that narrative to be told, uh, you know, as if it doesn't, right? That diversity is over here, and somebody in HR should think about that, and management is over there, and sometimes you cross the boundary between tech and management. Um, but that's different to, you know, and then they still have these, these coders. And I, I think that belies the opportunity to think in a more complex and and systemic way, uh, which agile and, you know, many of these types of disciplines kind of forces to happen. And, uh, I I think across the organization, tell me if you think this, this is true, but it, it takes, um, it's, it really takes the same skills across you know all the functions, right? I mean, everybody ought to be doing that, right. and and siloing is is a standard problem in organizations. You know, we get we get stuck in our craft, and we like our craft, and sometimes we don't even want to be those other people. I mean, you just kind of have yeah. to do it, and um, you know, some developers don't want to be management don't want to lead anyone you still need to be able to communicate right i was thinking about this the
1: other day one of the things that i would have liked to have got better at as a as a more junior person was communicating with the rest of my team to sell them on my ideas that's almost a leadership skill but it's even more difficult if you're not in a leadership position when you're sort of saying look you know i know we have this design approach but how about we think about it from this point of view um but those sort of persuasion skills which make us good team members and potentially improve our code are just not valued in enough.
0: And so what would, I don't know, what are some of the key skills that, you know, lessons that you, that you have learned, you know, distill down some of that into, you know, some actionable, hey, you better go do this, you know, while you have time.
1: So, um, I worked to Elmax, which is, um, a trading platform in London and, when I was there, so that was a. I was looking to work in a, a sort of so called agile shop for a long, long time, and I went to places that had, you know, two week sprints or little cards blue tacked on the wall, but they weren't really agile. They were just kind of using these techniques to paper over the the classic problems of slipping deadlines and, like you say, silos um, and. Uh, things like getting the requirements too late and stuff like that oh if we work on one week uh, sprints that will solve the fact that our requirements are late no it won't <laughs> they'll just be late every week Um So when I worked at LMAX, they were doing Agile the way that I'd read about it in books, which included sort of extreme programming in terms of pairing, not just pairing with developers, pairing with business analysts, pairing with technical testers. And by technical testers, I don't mean necessarily coders, but people who can write code and run automated tests. Um, And we were also doing some DevOps stuff in terms of – we didn't pair with the Ops guys, but we – I use the word guys because they were boys, but um, the Ops people. Um, But we did a lot of work with the Ops people sort of saying, look, what are the problems you face? When we fling this um, object over to you and get you to deploy it, what are your pain points? What can we do to help? Um, So there's there's quite a few things there which made me realize that uh, the way we develop software can be done differently. One was – Constant communication. So pair programming is all about constant communication. Pair programming with um, a business analyst and a tester is totally different to here's the requirements document, read it, potentially ask me questions over email, which I'll reply to you in like two weeks time. You know, this is like sit down. Okay, explain to me. This is how I understand me as a developer. This is how I understand the business problem. Um, what Does that sound right to you? Or like, what about this edge case that I've thought about? And then having the testers there saying, have you thought about what happens when the user does this ridiculous thing that of course the user will never do, except they'll do it like all the time. Um, And this is like sat at the computer and helping to flesh out the automated tests. So this communication was super useful. From a technical point of view, I I enormously upskilled because I was pair programming and I was learning how to use IntelliJ IDEA every day. The shortcuts, you don't even know how to look for them because you don't know they exist. You know, the functionality that's in your tools that you don't know about and you don't know you don't know about. Um, You learn so much about it. Um, And of course, one of the things that I thought was really useful there was um, understanding some of the compromises that we had taken. And whenever you're working on a code base, there's always like three or four different styles, you know, because, you know, that's last year's fashion. We did it that way last year. (laughs) And then we were doing it this way, but we really want to go that way. When you're pairing with people, they can be like, especially when you're getting up to speed, look, you know, I know it's done this way, but the code over here is the way we want it to be. And that's much better than having documentation on Confluence or something like that when the whole team is having those conversations that knowledge is always fresh. So pairing for me was a, a very specific actionable way to, to get up to speed, both the business domain, the technical domain, the tools we use, and uh, and crossing those barriers of communication in terms of the, the business and the technical and the, and the testing. And it
0: strikes me that the organization needs to understand and be willing to invest in, in what would appear to be inefficiency, you know, in the short run, right? I mean, three people sitting around yeah. one computer, if I'm a bean counter... You know, I go, geez, that's expensive. You know what? Well, Would Separate those people, get them to work, right? And, and you need right. to be willing it's to invest really in that.
1: It's really tricky because we tend to assume that programming is a typing activity, which it is not. It is a thinking activity. And um, so you tend to assume you've got two people next to one computer, then the bottleneck is the keyboard. But, of course, it's not. Because when there's two of you, you're having these discussions. You're not waiting for someone else to answer your questions. You're talking about the, the trade-offs and potentially coming to a better design. So there's a lot of studies about whether pair programming is actually faster or not. So of course the answer is it depends. Um, but there there are also studies that imply that pair programming, uh, you you do introduce fewer bugs into the process because you're having the conversations, you're double checking each other's work, you're keeping each other honest. So pair programming it's not necessarily faster it might be faster but it you can lead to better quality code so that's that can be a bit worrying for organizations because they're like okay fine so i get you know code which is 50% better quality but i'm still using two resources but you're also doing things like you're you're reducing your bus factor so when one person leaves the team you don't have a gaping hole of siloed knowledge which is, has disappeared and you don't have to invest so much in like um, activities to ensure that the knowledge is shared. You don't have to invest in necessarily documenting the system. You don't have to invest in, um, well, so we used to do things like brown bag sessions as well. So we would have Monday lunchtimes so where we all got together and chatted about stuff. Um, and we had things like retrospectives and things. But a retrospective is an expensive meeting when the whole team is sat there in a meeting. It's significantly more expensive than say pairing. For us, pairing every day was totally valuable because we were working on a difficult domain um, and we were trying to get the code out quickly, but with quality because it's a financial domain. Given other organizations that I've seen, other projects, other ways of working, it's not always going to be 100% um, pair programming for everybody. So there's going to be sometimes when when you're literally bashing out a CRUD application and it is as simple as create, read, update, and there's a lot of generated code and it's just like wiring, you don't necessarily need to pair on that stuff. And sometimes you don't want to pair when you're doing a bit of prototyping because you want to play with it and see how it works. And, but if you're doing – we sort of had a thing of if you're writing code that's going into master, you pair on that. You can prototype stuff on your own as much as you want, but you throw it away because it hasn't been code reviewed. It hasn't been Well, changed. I know there's,
0: there's equal studies that have on the quality front. You talk about the investment. It's, it's pretty easy to point to that You know, every bug that gets to production costs you 10 times as much to fix. And,
1: right. So find right, early and, and that that
0: investment it. is only two x, not ten x. Right. If you if you're pairing, um, you're right. right I yeah. do hear that a lot, though. Um, you know, particularly for clients that are paying, you know, sort of by the hour. Right. If I put six developers into retro for an hour, that's a very expensive mm-hmm. thing, and you need to be able to to really demonstrate to the the paying entity that you know, in fact that that was valuable because it saved downstream. Uh, and you do get in a little of that, you know, it's a lot about trust because we know that that works. Um, but we can't prove that had we not done it, it would have been much worse and more expensive for you. So you get like that proven negative kind of, uh, situation. So, you know, I,
1: It does depend a lot. It depends a lot on management. It also depends um, on the team itself. So we used to recruit specifically knowing that we pair programmed every day. Uh, And so we would hire people that we wanted to sit next to pairing with. And it did mean we rejected some good technical candidates who we didn't want to sit with and pair every day. So you can't necessarily impose pairing onto a team that's not designed to pair because there might not be those communication skills or that inclination or um, so you sort of have to build it a little bit from the ground up and as you say have trust and have management saying this is the thing we're going to do and allow people if you're going to impose it on a team allow team members to say I'm not this is not my thing so either to rotate into a different team or to perhaps only pair afternoons or be part of mob programming instead of pair programming where maybe they could just sort of sit da- sit back and watch rather than feel like they are being watched all the time
0: I just had a conversation the other day with, with a dev who said, you know, I am working so hard on my stage fright, but I can't type in front of somebody. And uh, very much like, it's like a, when you're that kind of craftsman, you know, I think it's, it's like getting up on stage and speaking. And so, uh, it's like
1: doing a live demo. It's like doing yeah, a live demo right. all the time, and yeah. it's really hard. You know the demo gods hate you, and you know <laughs> that your brain is going to freeze as soon as you try and type something. So pair programming again is something that requires practice, like anything else. Yeah. Um, And it requires you to have those conversations out loud. When you're sat at the keyboard going, I don't know what this method is called or whatever, you need to say those conversations. Is it because you don't know what the method is called or is it because you're a bit stalled because you're not really sure where the design is going from here? Or is it that literally you just forgot that you're supposed to order something for home, right? (laughs) Like having those sorts of out loud conversations, it doesn't necessarily suit everyone, but if you can get into the habit of that, it's fantastic for, it's fantastic for having those conversations out loud that you're always having internally. Anyway, it stops you <laughs> spinning in circles of, Oh, I should do it this way. Oh, I should do it that way. Oh, I should do it this way. Oh, you know, you have those conversations out loud and you could do it with rubber ducking too, but it's better if the rubber duck talks back and says, <laughs> no, that's not the right thing to do.
0: I know we could go on forever with this, but I totally appreciate these thoughts, you know, because I think that, um, if we're ever going to all get better at this stuff, it's just got to be out there. and You got to be able to have a have a dialogue. So I appreciate your your investment in doing that with us. And thanks for being here. We could talk a long time. I know we'd enjoy it, but uh, I hope the audience got something out of it.
1: Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us,
0: Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.